The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Nick Kepler. He's a freelance journalist who has written extensively about psychology, healthcare, and public policy for publications including the Washington Post, Vice, Slate, Reuters, Men's Health, and more. I discovered his reporting on the Norfolk Southern Trail derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, in Environmental Health News, and recognized this as an important investigation to share with Food Sleuth radio listeners, because these train derailments poison air, water, soil, and food, and they make people sick in the short and long term. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Melinda. I'm glad to be here. Well, I read on your webpage that you like to report on difficult stories and ones that make you pore over studies and explain concepts that have taken years to develop. Why is that? Well, I guess if it were easy, it wouldn't be fun or challenging. <laughs> I and mean, that's really feel right. about journalism. The more time you can spend on something, the deeper you can get into it, the more you can find something of substance, I think. Right. Well, before your freelance work, you were an editor at the Houston Press, which is now scarcely staffed, and it's an online-only publication. You were also at the Fairfield County Weekly, which is now defunct. And so you're now a freelance journalist. And it's interesting because I think the coverage of critical stories like this really need a constant presence to continue to tell the story. What do you think about that? I think that's very true. There were days in East Palestine where there was media everywhere. If you were trying to walk down the street interviewing people, it was hard to find somebody who was not another journalist. And then those days ended and people left. What's going on day to day? So much of it is being looked at or monitored through like Twitter and TikTok. You have residents posting their own videos. And it's great that they're documenting that stuff. But having people constantly there with a critical eye, I think, is very important. There have been some good publications that have kept on top of this. The Washington Post has continued to report on it and has a pretty good staff that has a wide view of all the problems that this encompasses, the problems with railroad regulations, the problems with petrochemicals. But they don't have anyone there day to day connecting to residents. And I think when you don't have somebody who's relating to another person on the ground, human to human, you lose something. I mean, that is why they sent me up there. So they do have value in that. But yeah, that's just not happening day to day in East Palestine. It's a place where there's not a lot of news coverage. The nearest daily paper is The Vindicator, which is at a Youngstown, and that's lost a lot of staff, just like papers all across the country. Right. Well, I was going to ask you how it turned out that you were assigned the story by the Washington Post, and then the story that I saw ultimately ended up in environmental health news. Because I think the Washington Post has a paywall. That's important because writers need to be paid. Environmental health news is a little more accessible. 
And I want to provide a link to the series of stories that you did for them. But how is it that you were the one chosen to cover the story? You know, I just connected with the Washington Post a few years ago. And whenever something happens around the Pittsburgh area, they call me out. It's usually something tragic. So I spent several days in the town talking to people and also trying to get data, get camera footage of this train speeding into town. So it was a good way to get not just introduced to the problem, but also the people, the community, how people were were living day to day. And then for environmental health news, I returned four months later and saw the contrast, what had changed, what hadn't changed. Okay, we should back up because it may be that there are people who don't know what happened. We are talking about a train derailment There were several dozen cars of a Norfolk Southern freight train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. It happened on February 3rd, 2023. Five tanker cars carrying potentially hazardous chemicals, which we now know what some of them were, went into flame. And you had video footage showing cars on fire 20 miles away from East Palestine as the train sped into town. What do you want us to know about the basics of this derailment? Basically, uh, there was a, an important component that was overheating. Um, usually, so there are sensors along the tracks that would tell you that. But at the point it was in East Palestine, it was 20 miles away from the next sensor that would notify the staff on board that they did have this major problem. At that point, you already had cars that were on fire that was captured on a video camera about 20 miles away. So once it finally got into the town and the train tracks go right through the middle of town, you had several dozen cars derail initially. And then I think about 50 were finally in the derailment pile. This is out of a train that has about 150 cars on it, which is a very large train. There was an engineer who had seen this train at a stop in Illinois and expressed some concern about how large it was because it was 150 cars and it was 18,000 tons. Apparently, a yardmaster just replied, well, this is what they want. And that's from the um, National Transportation Safety Board's investigation, which is still ongoing. So to summarize, just a very, very large train overheated, came into town and derailed. The timeline of what happens next is important. It wasn't just the train derailing. You had chemicals seep out of the train cars. And almost immediately what happened after that was thousands of fish died in two creeks that run through town. So then there were explosions within the cars, or at least that's what was reported. The decision to do a controlled burn, which would put many pollutants in the air, would have this toxic mix go airborne. That decision was made by the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine. He said it was up to him and the town's fire chief, ultimately. But at the immediate response, you have like a small town fire chief, and then you have all these people from Norfolk Southern, who's part of their emergency response team. So I I think they were letting the people from Norfolk Southern call a lot of the shots, even if ultimate authority rested with these officials in Ohio, the, the governor and the town's fire chief. So with that, they did a um, controlled burn. And when they finally did that, they evacuated a small part of town, like a district about the size of two miles by one mile. And there was just this black cloud of smoke all over above town. Some people have told me about how it just went through their house, like some sort of apocalyptic movie. And then 
two days later, the governor, uh, Mike DeWine, declared that it was okay to come back. And that's pretty much been his position ever since, that the town is safe. There's no reason to stay away. But despite this, many people have reported a variety of symptoms. Some of them seem to be about immediate exposure, like they come home, they have burning eyes, they have a rash. I talked to one person who was there at the time of the immediate derailment, and he said that just something entered his throat and just hasn't really left since then. I mean, that's not medical terminology, but that's how it felt to him. And then you have a lot of people expressing fatigue when they get into town, headaches. Anecdotally, I'd say if you live near the creek, there was probably a larger chance that you would report these symptoms. A lot of the people I talked to who had really bad symptoms live close to the creek. That's not something that's been studied yet. We're still waiting for a lot of research to come out. But anecdotally, based on people's conversations with me, it, it seems like if you live near the creek, you might have it worse. So yeah, that was pretty much the course of events that set this off. And for months now, the town has just been dealing with trying to find answers that they trust and solutions that they can have faith in. And I, I can't speak for everyone in town, and there's a lot of divergent opinions, but I, I don't think a lot of people are convinced of what the state and what the federal EPA say, and that's that the town is safe and there's no reason to link any health problems to the derailment. Well, how did Governor DeWine decide that everything was fine and it was safe to go back home? I think he relied on information from the state EPA. That's under his direct control. Immediately, the federal EPA was there on site. They took over on February 21st, so a few weeks after the derailment. I think he's relying on data from those two agencies at the state and federal level. Yeah. Some of the independent researchers who've been in town have criticized the EPA and also the contractors who are coming in from Norfolk Southern who are testing individual homes for just sort of testing the bare minimum, for not testing for specific chemicals that could be hazardous. Again, we've yet to see comprehensive test results from some of these independent researchers in East Palestine. But I mean, many people just trust their eyes and ears more than they trust an EPA statement. Some of these houses just quite frankly smell bad. You can just get the whiff of it in the air. Some places you are and people are trusting that. As well they should. Our noses are really good sensors for when things aren't right. And so just to let people know, you have and others have reported that some of the most toxic chemicals that were released are benzene and vinyl chloride. We know that benzene, for example, is a petrochemical byproduct. It's also a known carcinogen. Unfortunately, these chemicals tend to be persistent pollutants. So people are having acute symptoms now. As you mentioned, some of them, there were others reported asthma, bloody noses. So those would be the acute symptoms, but there's got to be concern too for pregnant women and how exposure might affect the developing child. Children also, highly vulnerable populations and we may not know the full extent of this derailment for another 10 or 20 years. Yeah, the vinyl chloride is used to make PVC piping and those kinds of things. And when it's a gas, it has been shown to cause liver damage and cancer. I won't pretend to be a chemist, but the researchers, both government and independent who are there, are, are looking for 
dioxins, which is a volatile chemical compound. Right. And that's sort of a byproduct of burning industrial chemicals. You can find them in the air if you're near certain kinds of industrial activity. And those have been shown to be very harmful over time. They are linked to increased reproductive problems, developmental problems among children. So that is, of course, of enormous concern. It's hard scientifically and legally to link developments like that to a specific source, but they certainly are correlated, and it's an enormous concern to everyone who's studying this. Right. Let me take one break, Nick, and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Mr. Nick Kepler. He is a freelance journalist who has been covering the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. The derailment occurred in February of 2023. There are reports now many months later showing that people are still suffering the effects of this incident. Nick, I want to know how soon after this derailment did you arrive in town? A week afterwards, I was there talking to people on the ground. It was sort of incredible. I mean, the town park, it looked like outside of the house in the movie E.T., where there's just all these plastic tents and industrial things that you don't know what they do. They're pumping water like in and out of the creeks around town. Every truck you saw seemed to be some sort of contractor that did chemical remediation. A lot of license plates from Texas and other petrochemical states. So when I got there, the town had just been taken over by this effort to address the chemicals. At that time, a lot of people had left. And you already had people who were doing their own documentation. I met several people taking photographs and footage by the creek because they didn't really believe the pronouncements that had been made so recently that things were safe. So to, just to give you a little background on the town, it, it is a, a rural village. It's got about 4,700 people at the last census. It's not rich by any means. Your average income for a family is about 40 grand a year. Like a lot of towns in that area, industry has moved out and there's been less job opportunity and some loss of population. But East Palestine hasn't had it as bad as some of the other towns. There's still ceramics and entire manufacturing there. But I think what keeps people there is family. Most of the people I talk to tell me about relatives who live nearby. If they're not raising kids there, then they have a mom who still lives in town and they're staying close to extended family. I think that's what keeps a lot of people living there. Sure. And then when a disaster like this happens, you've got the pull of your family members. And with a low-income community, there aren't the resources to pick up and leave for extended periods of time. And you're, certainly your reporting and that of others have shown just that, that people were going to hotels and trying to manage for months sometimes. And was Norfolk Southern trying to reimburse them? I mean, this is a company that makes billions in profits. Norfolk Southern's response has been a, a bit confusing to me and to many of the residents. So immediately they set up an assistance center. And that was a, at a church about five miles away. Not everyone in East Palestine has a car. So I saw a lot of people biking there. You got people who are hitching rides. But I think the company's official policy is that if you lived within this mandatory evacuation zone, which again is one mile by two miles of the town, 
If you lived in the mandatory evacuation zone, you could get a $1,000 inconvenience fee, and then they would pay for your hotel, your groceries, the supplies you needed to leave. But it was limited to people who lived in that very small area. I can tell you there's many people who did not live within the mandatory evacuation zone who will tell you that their house smells bad, that the water that comes out of their faucet burns their skin, that naturally have fears about returning. I did talk to a woman who, she and her adult daughter both live in town, and she replaced many household fixtures like curtains, tiles, sopas. I mean, no one wanted to keep that stuff around if it smells like this giant black gas ball that enveloped the town. So she got rid of those stuff, and then she asked the representative at Norfolk Southern if they'd pay, and according to her, their response was, we're not there yet, which I guess is better than no, but... If you've got to make plans on where you're going to be staying next month, next year, it's not a great answer. So yeah, I mean, Norfolk Southern is paying. I don't have any doubt that they're paying a lot to keep some people in a hotel. But as far as who's eligible for how long, I couldn't get a very clear answer when I emailed the company. And I think people on town are confused about that as well. Well, you had reported that Norfolk Southern is the fourth largest railway operator in the U.S. by profit at $3.13 billion. So their primary purpose, you report, is moving industrial and fuel supplies around the eastern half of the United States. But one of the things that was very clear to me from reading some of the residents' accounts is that this could happen anywhere and that derailments are actually fairly common. So even though this happened to this small rural community, I think it's wise for us to be aware that these things happen and that we have to have greater safety controls and to put people and environment before profit. Another thing that this is all brought to light is just how little regulation there is of the railway systems. I mean, you do have these large corporations like Norfolk Southern that basically rule over an entire area, and there's very little regulation of them, particularly when it comes to trains like this. I didn't know this, and I was pretty surprised to learn it, but there is no law telling you how long you can make a train. The industry is just allowed to decide that by themselves, and that's been true since 1980. The Federal Railroad Administration, they do not set any limits on train lines. They don't even track how long trains are or the risks of having trains that are getting longer and longer and carrying a lot of these industrial chemicals. But I think anyone who works in the industry will tell you that they are getting longer. And it was one of those issues in the almost strike of railroad workers that happened at the end of last year, or, or I should say did not happen at the end of last year. Another thing that I found surprising is that when a train reaches a certain threshold for the amount and concentration of dangerous chemicals on board, they're dubbed a high hazardous flammable train. And basically what the train company has to do is send a note to the town, send communication into the town that this very high hazardous flammable train is coming into town. Now, if you're a small town, I don't know what you really do with that information. I don't know if anyone is even watching that, except for like particularly vigilant local officials. So yeah, it was very surprising just how little all this has been regulated, how old the brake systems that are used on these trains. There's been some movement in the Senate to change things. The Senate Commerce Committee has drafted a bill. 
I don't think it would put a lot of regulation on the train companies, but it would give some more funding for emergency response crews. There's some older tank cars you wouldn't be able to use anymore. It would require that trains have a crew of at least two people. That was shocking to me that you can legally run a train with one person controlling the train. But I guess if this bill passes, it would be two. So yeah, I think it, it's brought to life for a lot of people just how little regulation there is over the railway system. And if you live in a town with train tracks, if you see trains, this applies to you. Exactly. Now, how many people did you speak to during the course of your reporting, would you estimate? Probably around three dozen. Did they by any chance tell you what they want? It really depends. Organizations in East Palestine that have made it very clear that they want Norfolk Southern to be paying for the health of the residents and for the cleanup in perpetuity. Some people I spoke to just want their house to be safe. I mean, I know that sounds blith, but there's some people who just were not very concerned about the overall governmental response. They just needed to know right now when they could move back in, when the smell would go away, when the cough would go away. Yeah. I think people in that part of Ohio are not naturally reactionary. They don't like to be very demanding or rock the boat. So some people I, I spoke to had sort of a wait and see kind of attitude about what kind of reaction they wanted from their government, from their elected leaders. But I would say overall, people are very concerned that the focus of the federal government, the focus of the representatives and in the White House and in Congress and in the Senate will move on and they will be forgotten and be dealing with whatever after effects this has. I would say that that was probably the overarching concern that I think everyone shared. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the program, because I think we need to keep this issue front and center and follow this population over time to find out what happens when people are exposed to this level of contamination. I'm, of course, concerned about water being our most important nutrient. The fact that people have been advised not to use their water by some authorities, and yet others like Governor DeWine is saying, everything's fine. And yet that isn't the experience of the people living in the community. You did two stories for environmental health. One was, I believe, in June of 2023, and then there was another one in August. But in one of those stories, you spoke to a man who, for the first time in 30 years, can't have a garden because we would be wise to assume that the soil is contaminated. Yeah. If you want to sort of assess how little people trust the official statement that the water is fine, drive through town and see how many places have stacks of bottled water on their porch. We have charities that are donating bottled water to East Palestine. And you know, when I was there, I was near the church where they were one of the big distribution sites for the bottled water. If you just imagine like the back of a church, an entire wall of boxes of bottled water just stacked to the top, stacked about like six feet tall. I was with a worker who was just helping to load those into people's car. And she said that that massive wall of water I saw would last about three days. Many, many people in town are relying on bottled water. The state, the EPA says that the water is safe. The well water 
comes from like five wells that are about a mile each away from the derailment site. The EPA says that there's concrete casing over the wells that would protect them from like any chemicals seeping in. I just don't know if there's a lot of trust in that. You did have the EPA administrator, Michael Reagan, he came to town on the 21st and he and Governor DeWine and some other officials drank tap water from the town as, I guess, a show of confidence. I think it, that gave many people sort of memories of Flint, Michigan, where you had the mayor. Right. <laughs> Just months leading into this, when people were saying that their water was bad, were putting videos of their water on fire on YouTube, that you still had the mayor of Flint drinking water on TV, like it proved something. Well, one glass of water is not equivalent to living in a community and consuming that water and bathing in that water daily. Yeah. And again, I've not done a person-by-person -person study, but I went to where they are giving away the water and it is busy. People are still relying on that. I mean, this was four months afterwards. It is interesting to know that there are independent researchers who are in East Palestine who are doing tests. Uh, Dr. Andrew Welton from Purdue testing water consistently. They don't have anything to say definitively yet, but he's warned people not to go in the creeks. Even the EPA administrator has said, don't go in the creeks. He's also made some warnings about just how the EPA is testing water. He doesn't think it's sufficient. And he's also noted that in places where water from the two streams in town collect, there seems to be this chemical smell. We've got another researcher, a Dr. Aaron Haynes from the University of Kentucky, who's charting people's health, doing questionnaires. She's taking blood and urine samples. At one point, you had some students, mostly from Carnegie Mellon University, were there with a uh, device that tests for certain pollutants in the air. And it was about six times higher than what's normal in that area. But the thing about all these studies is it's great that they're there. It's great that they're doing it. But, you know, academic studies, people from universities, that whole infrastructure is not set up to respond to an immediate disaster. You've got to go through rounds of funding, and then you'll have results that are peer tested. And the people who are there will have bits of input as they go along, but it's just not ideal. And I guess when they have their results, we'll start to see some evidence. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what they will find? But it does have echoes of Flint, Michigan, where it was the independent researchers who blew this open and the state did not know what was going on. I don't know if that will be the case in East Palestine, but it is good that there are independent researchers on the ground who will have evidence that other people in their field will be reviewing and might give people some answers. Another thing to note is it's just terribly confusing to be a resident of not just that town, but that surrounding area right now. Sometimes what they're hearing from their government, they may have gotten a test from the county health department. They may have gotten a test that Norfolk Southern paid for of their soil, of their water, of their home that said it was fine, but they still smell things. They still don't feel well. That's a very common experience. Mm. And I think not only do they have to deal with the immediate symptoms, but they don't really know what to believe or who to trust. Mm -hmm. Well, Nick, I'll provide links to both of the stories you did for Environmental Health News. And I encourage everyone to continue to follow this national tragedy. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, it may have been something you saw on CNN or read in a paper a few months ago, but for people 
not just in East Palestine, but in the surrounding area. It's an ongoing issue to deal with that's causing a lot of misery for those people in that area. That's right. Well, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Nick Kepler. He is a freelance journalist covering the tragedy of the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Thanks for your time today, Nick. Thank you, Melinda. 